Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Good morning. We're teaching through, we're journeying through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I really enjoy Mark. Just let me, just, just a couple of just things in review, if you haven't been with us. Um, this Gospel um, is kind of fast-paced, actually. Mark writes in a way and records things in a way um, and communicates in a way to where he just, he moves immediately <laughs> to the next thing. And, and actually, uh, one of the words that he utilizes all the time is the word immediately. And uh, I kind of like that about Mark. He, he um, I think, uh, compacts a lot in um, the way he writes the way he records things. He's recording this gospel through sort of the lens of Peter, right? And Peter's a really colorful character. And so these are, it's kind of through Peter's memories and through the journey, sort of like he's following Peter around and recording all of this. Um, Also, we discovered that uh, he jumps in right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, right when he's baptized. So he doesn't uh, record all these other things that the other gospel uh, writers uh, record, you know, the genealogy and um, all of, uh, you know, what we know of Jesus's childhood and Christmas, things like that, right? Um, The other thing is that I think it's important to remember or remind you, uh, I said last week that when this gospel is introduced, it's probably the first one um, of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Mark is probably first. Although there's a little, uh, there, there, there's some, you know, there's some uh, scholars that would say there's, there's maybe another one. Maybe John's uh, might be first. But at the time that people get this gospel, they've, um, or the gospel of Mark, they've already had the gospel, okay? The church has been birthed. Peter's already been preaching. Paul's letters have been um, uh, um, distributed, so to speak. Um, The church has been birthed. So the gospel of Mark comes later, okay? Even though we're, when you read through it, you are, uh, you kind of sucked into it real time, right? So um, in these first Four chapters, actually in the first three chapters, what you discover is that Jesus is really shaking things up. He's very controversial. And it's because he's virtually started a revolution. He has changed everything. He's shook people kind of to the core, in, uh, in particular, the nation of Israel. Okay? And he is reordering things, recreating things. And so changing people's worldview, how they see the world, and um, they are not expecting it. So you can imagine it's, for some, um, uh, they, they, they don't receive it quickly, right? And, uh, or they don't receive it at all. So it's divisive amongst church leaders, like the Pharisees, um, the, the, the chief priests, the, um, the Herodians, all these uh, folks are, are kind of struggling. But Mark's gospel is really diverse. His audience is really diverse. So the way he communicates, he's not necessarily 
setting out to communicate to people who grew up in church, so to speak, okay, who maybe don't know a lot, um, but, um, but maybe now have come to Christ. And so this begins to uh, shake things up as it's introduced uh, real time, right? There's some persecution and suffering. And so this letter comes at a time where it can be motivating, encouraging, inspiring, and um, uh, force you to choose, so to speak. Does that make sense? So in chapter four now, we see all kinds of really great things. In chapter four, um, we're in a place in Jesus's ministry now when leadership, when the leadership of Israel then has really entrenched themselves in opposition in particular to Jesus. So they are in opposition almost to the point where it's gonna get violent now. We know that that's where it leads. And at this critical juncture, Mark records that Jesus, um, he makes a dramatic shift in both the arena and the method that he teaches in. So he takes it out of the synagogue and he puts it, um, he puts it in the open air, the arena that he teaches in. And then he begins to teach in parables. And this is significant. Um, exclusively now for a, a time, he teaches in these cryptic ways, all right? So he departs from the traditional locations and he changes all kinds of things. And, and, and before he's preaching um, an announcement, a proclamation of the kingdom, now he's teaching in a, in a more cryptic way through parables. And this then is done for a couple of reasons. And we went through that last week. I won't re-preach that message. But his reasons for taking these actions are actually clear. Everyone in Israel, they welcomed the announcement of the kingdom of God. Everyone's eager to witness the unfolding of the kingdom. That's true. But when, uh, so, so why the controversy? Why is it so divisive? Why is it about to get violent? The dispute rises over the way Jesus taught, the way Jesus taught that the kingdom was coming, all right? And that, and, and this is what brought about anger, actually. But Jesus refuses to do it any other way. This is the way he's gonna do it. So the parables in Mark's gospel all focus on the word um, seed, actually. Up until this point, in fact, in uh, chapter four, specifically the word seed, it's used 12 times in chapter four. You may not be able to count all the specific words seed, but in its original language, 12, time, 12 times in some form, all right? And uh, I think that's unique because the seed would give birth to a new nation is, is the point here. The seed would give birth to a new nation. And knowing the way of the seed is a big deal. It's to know the way of the kingdom and how it grows. And so there's nothing more important than the church today because that's what is unfolding. That's what is being birthed. And so um, in the first parable, the sower and his seed, in the very first parable where he teaches like this, right, he explains that the inauguration of the kingdom would not look promising at first, right? Remember, there's three failures 
when the seed is spread out there, the first three times it doesn't, it, it, um, it doesn't go anywhere. And some of the seed is snatched away by the enemy. Other is, others' seed is scorched and left without root or choked by worldly pressures. But the fertility granted those who respond positively would outweigh the initial rejection. So that's where we focused last week is that we get so, um, I do anyway, my, I naturally get uptight over the failure, Right? And I, I know it's, the, it's, it's all of our nature. <clears throat> if you have children and they come home with their report card, all right, and there are <clears throat> five subjects that they take, they can get an A in four subjects and get a C in one subject, and which one do you talk about the whole time? I mean, it's just natural. That's what my, where my eye goes. Instead of like, wow, you have four A's, and one average grade, right? You're just, I, I, you know, and you can just bring it all down to, you know, what, what? I mean, my goodness, you know, you, if you just do a little bit of work, you could have five A's, right? Instead of, um, I don't know, that's just the way we naturally think. Isn't that the way you think? Maybe I'm the only one. No, I think you do. I see a lot of you shaking your head. So, um, the, the fertile soil, if you look at the, if you really analyze the parable, the fertile soil, soil and, and, and its production incredibly outweighs, it just overwhelms the failure, overwhelms the failure by up to a hundred times, okay? Somehow in real time, we look at the three failures um, actually quite a bit. Um, okay, so now I, I just want to shift gears just a little bit. Let's think back, um, those of you who are true believers, Christ followers, people who have surrendered your life to Jesus. I want you to think back to that, that time when you came to Christ. Maybe you just came to Christ. Uh, maybe it wasn't that long ago. Maybe it was a long time ago, if it's like, uh, like me. Um, Maybe you're still wrestling with things and you're still trying to figure it out. It doesn't matter. Just think about this a little bit. Let me put it into um, uh, a little bit more of a familiar kind of an example. When, uh, when I came to Jesus, I was a pretty young child. But where, I, where it really took root in my life and where I think it was really productive was about the eighth grade. Um, I, I really... Uh, uh, was hungry. I've spent time in God's word. I loved church. I began to um, take interest in uh, lots of things, um, understand the gospel. Um, I began to invite my friends to church, and uh, my life uh, just really changed, right? Um, my, my, my friends, leadership, everything, I think that's when the Lord really grabbed a hold of me and um, where I truly decided uh, or or um, I guess where I understood God was calling me to be a pastor, maybe of some kind, okay? About the eighth grade and my freshman year really took off, all right? And um, in the, as, as a freshman in high school at uh, the beginning of my freshman year, the end of uh, the eighth grade, so I'm 15. And what does a 15-year-old think about? Well, maybe girls, right? 
That's true. I wasn't thinking about it as much, but it's a, it's a, it's a close tie. But I'm telling you, uh, I have some pictures of the things I was thinking about. Okay. Let me go ahead. Oh, st- just stay right there. That is a 64 Chevy pickup. Okay. And um, that is the way, uh, that's, that's, that's the truck that I purchased for $300 as a 15-year-old. Now, it didn't look like that. I mean, it did not look like that. But in, ni- uh, in 1964, you could buy that truck for about, uh, for under $1,000, actually. I mean, doesn't that sound crazy? About $1,100 to $1,500, you know, if you got the special one right there, like that one is really great, right? So um, I bought, I had my own money. I saved up and I bought, a, I bought a 64 Chevy truck, all right, for $300. And it did not look like that, okay? Now, by the time I got done with it, my senior year in high school, it looked like that, right? Okay, but when I was driving it uh, around, as it was spitting and sputtering and everything, it was, uh, you know, it had, it was three on the tree, right? The clutch was burnt. It had a little straight six-cylinder engine in it, and by the time I got done with it, it had a little, uh, it had a small block V8 in it. It had a four-speed Muncie transmission in it. It had a huge carb, uh, uh, carburetor on it that would just suck the gas like through a straw. It got about 15, 12 to 15 miles of the gallon if you drove it like a baby. But the way I drew, drove it, it got under 10 miles of the gallon. I peeled more rubber off of those tires than you can imagine, right? I, it, 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 was, it was painted beautifully. The interior was all diamond tuck leather. I mean, I had a stereo in it that would make your ears bleed. I dumped so much money in that. That truck was my first love. It really was. It was so much so that I did ask out this girl in uh, my sophomore year in high school. Uh, it was really my first, uh, you know, I, you know, time when I, when I went out on a date. And so she was a girl that was in the youth group and, and things like that. And so I asked her to, to, to go out. And so we, we did a couple of things, right? And, um, um, but when I asked her out, my truck was so, I mean, there were springs coming up through the seat. It was bad. It was rotten to the core. That truck looked awful. The fenders were flopping around and it sputtered around. It was terrible. You know, even into my, my sophomore year in high school, I just didn't have enough money to fix it up yet. But, but uh, I asked this girl out, and um, my parents had a really nice Eldorado Cadillac. And so I begged my parents to take out this girl in that two-door, front-wheel drive Eldorado Cadillac. And I drove up and picked her up, and she was like, wow, Right? And uh, it was awesome. That car was so amazing. And I walked her into that car. We went, you know, dinner and a movie. And I took her out like three times in that car. I took her home from school a couple of times. But I'll tell you what, about, uh, you know, uh, several weeks into this relationship, I drove up to her house to pick her up to go to uh, a, a wrestling match, of all things, at the high school, 
wrestling. It was one high school in Prescott, Arizona, and everybody went to these wrestling matches. It was just something to do. So we were going to go to the wrestling match, and it was cool. Everybody showed up, hundreds of people at this at wrestling match. I don't know if that happens anymore. I kind of doubt it. But um, I, pit, I pulled up in the 64 Chevy truck that I was really proud of, right? I was really proud of it. I pulled up, I walked up to the door, and then I walked her out, and uh, we got out to my truck, and I walked around to open the door for her, for her to get in, and she was like, are you serious? You're picking me up in this? And I don't know, and deep inside, I tried to pretend like she actually didn't say that, right? But she was like, really? This is awful. I mean, you know, we're going to ride in this? This is like an old work truck, whatever, right? So um, she slid over in one of those springs, you know, poked, poked her, right? And it aggravated her. And I, uh, I got down to the end of the block and the stupid thing stalled on me. I got out and I lifted the hood and I Jiggled a few things around, and uh, that three-on-the-tree shifter thing kind of bound up. I don't know if you know anything about those, but it, like, got stuck, right, in gear. And so I jiggled it around. I get in. My hands are greasy, and I was, you know, it was awful, right? And she was like, well, if you would have picked me up in the other car, you know. And she just went on and on, and uh, we drove to where, um, uh, you know, almost to where we... we uh, We're going, and I'm telling you, she just said one too many things, and I turned around, and she didn't even realize it, and I started driving back, and we pulled right up in front of her house, and I said, hey, I don't think we're going to go out tonight, and she was like, what? And I opened the door, and I walked to the front door, and I said, I'll see you later. (laughs) Honestly, did that. She's like, well, what's the matter? And I go, this is my truck. I paid for it with my money. I'm taking you out with my money. And you're just doing nothing but bagging on my truck. I'll see you later. I don't think we're going anywhere tonight. And she was stupefied. And that was the first time she stopped talking. <laughs> I kid you not. I'm not exaggerating one bit. I dropped her off. And that's the last time we ever, you know, because she just, I, it, I saved a lot for that truck. It, was my, it wasn't my parents. It wasn't that great, but it was mine. And I was really proud of it. Actually, I really love that truck. I dropped her off, and that's the last time um, we ever uh, went out. That's for sure. <laughs> I wish she was listening to this podcast because she could, uh, if we talked today, she would say, I remember that. I promise you, she would never forget that. Because I was so mad. I was sort of humiliated and embarrassed and everything at the same time. And she was immature, probably. But, uh, but um, that was the last time I let somebody bag on my truck like that as a sophomore in high school, right? <clears throat> I was fed up. I love trucks. Lynette, you want to see my next truck? Oh, there's a 65 truck, right? It was uh, not as great. Um, and it took an awful long time to get it to look good, you know. And then uh, I kind of moved up, uh, moved up the food chain, and I, I, I bought a 76 Ford. It was called an Explorer. It had all the chrome on it and everything. Um, <clears throat> man, that truck, I could never get that truck to run right, right? 
And then uh, my freshman year in uh, college, I, brought, I bought a 1980 truck. Actually, I bought two 1980 pickups, Ford pickups. I brought two. I bought one that was wrecked in the front end, just smashed all up, and one that was wrecked in the rear end, right? <clears throat> and then I cut them in half and basically welded them together at the frame, and then I took all the parts and made one truck out of it in 1980, and that was a great truck. It never was quite the same because I took two trucks and made them into one, but I was really proud of it, right? I just couldn't get the doors to shut right. <laughs> oh, those were the days. I, I don't care. I don't, I don't care. I, I will always drive a pickup. I've always driven a pickup, and that's Four trucks out of, oh my gosh, I feel like there's hundreds. I actually have a whole uh, album full of trucks that I've driven my whole life. And most of them were just rotten old things that I fixed up and I spent a lot of time just trying to get working and running until uh, later in life when I could actually buy a good one. What, can you think back of, of your first love? I don't care if it's, you're talking about your girlfriend or trucks, or things, but what about when you first came to Jesus? When you first came to Jesus. When you first come to Jesus, man, you're hungry, you're focused. When I met my wife, Linda, she was such a young believer. She was so interested in all the things that uh, she could learn and grow, uh, grow through. It was so exhilarating to be around her because of her love for Christ was pure and just untainted, and everything was new and fresh. This is a beautiful time in life. Now hold that thought, and let's read in Mark chapter 4. Let's start in verse 21. <clears throat> Mark chapter 4, verse 21. He also said to them, this is Jesus, a lamp isn't brought to be put under a basket or under a bed, is it? Isn't it to be placed on a lampstand? Nothing is hidden except to be revealed and nothing concealed except to be brought to light. If anyone has ears to hear, there's that, there's that phrase again. He had better listen. Okay, we're listening. And he said to them, take care about what you hear. The measure you use will be the measure you receive. And more will be added to you. For whoever has will be given more. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Now this seems to be complicated a little bit. Especially as you keep reading through that parable. That's why we stopped in just a few verses this week. Jesus says that no one brings a lamp... Trey read this verse a little bit. No one brings a lamp into a room and puts it under a basket or a bed. Why don't you do that? Why does nobody do that? It either doesn't fit or you're going to burn your bed and the basket and everything, right? For one thing. Because we're not talking about electricity at this time, right? It's ridiculous. A lamp doesn't fit and it would catch on fire. A lamp is placed on a lampstand to illuminate the room. It's the whole idea. And as we saw last week, the, parable, uh, uh, in, um, the parables of Jesus were carefully designed to draw his hearers in, all right, 
by alluding to images and stories that were familiar to Israel, accounts that evoke hopes and dreams, all that kind of stuff. But once the hearer had been drawn into the story, Jesus would add a surprising new twist that would shatter existing worldviews. So he'd shake it up. He'd suck you in, get you interested. You would connect to it, just like I connected you to the story about trucks, whether you like trucks or not. Suck you in, right? Just like that. That's what, it was, uh, that's what stories do, and this is the way Jesus teaches. So the image of the lampstand underneath uh, uh, unearthed deep emotions in Israel's history. Did my story take you back to high school a little bit, maybe? Or if you're in high school? That's what happens. Deep emotions in Israel's history. It reminded them of, of, of the seven-branched golden lampstand whose purpose was to illuminate the holy place inside the temple, inside the tent of meetings, right? Out of Exodus 25, it reminded them too of the dark days of judges when the light was almost extinguished in Israel. <clears throat> It reminds them of uh, the prophet Zechariah that kept Israel awaiting the, the, uh, awaiting the messianic age. In, um, in chapter four, the prophet of, of Zechariah has a vision of a new lampstand with seven lamps of oil that burned so brightly they illuminated the entire earth. <clears throat> when Zechariah asked, what this meant, he reply, uh, the reply came, not by strength, not by power, but by spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies, Zechariah 4, 6. If you go back and you read through the prophets and all these things, see, these people know this, so that it, it unearths emotion about, about what they're waiting for and the Messiah that they're waiting for. So that moment has arrived at last in the lives of these people. The long-expected light had come in Jesus. You who walk in darkness will see great light, right out of Isaiah 9 too. And this was what Jesus was claiming. But why then does he conceal the light in parables? He explains that if he conceals, uh, concealed the light of the secrets of the kingdom, it's only a temporary thing. That's why. He's teaching in sort of a cryptic manner. The divine intention was to put the lamp on a lampstand and like the lampstand in the temple, enlighten the entire nation and beyond into the whole world. That's the intention. But for now, he's concealing it for a couple of reasons, right? <clears throat> so if too many understand too well Jesus's movement and the revolution that he starts, and maybe he, even his life is gonna be cut short. So that's why he conceals it and he speaks and teaches in a cryptic manner. He knew that his kingdom announcement was subversive. He knows that it would be a drastically un, uh, uh, unwelcomed, actually, for different reasons, reasons to the Romans, to Herod, and also zealous Jews and leaders. They're, they're, what they want is uh, um, the um, Messiah to come in with a sword and set things straight and be kind of a military leader. So he's got to speak in parables so that they may look and uh, some might look but never actually see. They might hear but they might not actually uh, understand. So these stories 
would get past the uh, get, get past everybody for a little bit. So Jesus says that the truth is hidden for now, but that's, the, that's only temporary. Complete disclosure is gonna follow. It's gonna come, okay? And the purpose behind its concealment uh, would be revealed, but only through those who have ears to hear. Only to those who have ears to hear. The privileged few, Okay? If the privilege tempts the disciples to pride, Jesus now goes on and picks up the idea of a measure. And the measure seems a little bit complicated right here, right? In the next parable, followed by the images of a bed in verse 27, it's just kind of crazy, but we're going to look at that next week. So let's go to the second point, the parable of the measure. Go to verse 24. Look at verse 24 and 25. And he said to them, take care about what you hear. The measure you, will, uh, the measure you use will be the measure you receive. And more will be added to you. Verse 25, for whoever has will be given more, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. So here, here the metaphor of the lamp and the measure. The metaphor of the lamp and the measure are combined into a double parallel by the catchword measure. And I don't like it to be complicated here, but, but this is not easy to understand at first pass. You gotta spend a little bit of time with it. In this way, Jesus links the theme of light with the theme of harvest. That's what he's trying to do here. The lamp and the measure, all right? It, 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 he's probably uh, alluding to Isaiah 9, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, where the prophet uses these same two images to describe this intense joy that Israel would experience when the light of the Messiah would come. Let me read it to you. Verse, uh, uh, Isaiah 9, verses 2 and 3. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in the land of deep darkness. You have enlarged the nation. You give them great joy. They rejoice in your present, presence as harvesters rejoice. So at that time, uh, now that time of that light, it's arrived in Jesus. It's arrived with a huge harvest that would bring intense joy um, in Israel. But Jesus says that joy is for only those who have ears to hear. It's for only, only for those who have ears to hear. So this image takes the disciples back to the first parable of the sower. That's the parable that we were in last week, encourage them, encouraging them to be the good, fertile soil. That's what he's trying to do here. It's not enough to be passive listeners. You can't be passive listeners. That's a message for us right in present day. You can come to church on Sunday morning and you can be a passive listener. They must allow the word to go deep. They have to, they, 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 must need, uh, they must keep it from worldly competition and distraction so that it's not choked out, right? If they're, uh, if they're careful to do that, Jesus says there's gonna be a great reward for the attention they gave to the parable. Listen to this. The attention they give to the parable would be the measure of profit that they would receive from it, okay? The word measure 
is used in its original language here with emphasis. It's a threefold alliteration. Let me say it like this. By the measure with which you measure it will be measured to you. By the measure with which you measure it will be measured to you. So Jesus is saying to those who are eager to enter into the parable, who dive deeply into these cryptic metaphors, the reward will be comparable and proportionate. Let me say that again. He's saying to those who are eager to enter into the parable, to engage with the parable, to study it, to understand it, to grapple with it, to get your arms around it, those who dive deeply into these cryptic metaphors, the reward will be comparable and proportionate to that effort, so to speak, that energy and getting your arms around it, absorbing it. It seems to me that the more that, that, that will be added to you, for, you know, out of verse 24, is not just more information, but the spiritual sensitivity to seek, uh, to see in an entirely new dimension. The, uh, this, this happens to me all the time. I can have people come to me and say, Pastor Ben, that message was so good. I mean, it really just, uh, right? And I am thinking, that was terrible. I, didn't, I biffed it, the whole thing. It just didn't come out like I wanted to. But they are just taken, they're just beside themselves. You know why that is? I mean, so, you know, I, I don't feel like that every week, but it's because they have been wrestling with it in a personal way, in their own personal worship time. They've been absorbing the scripture, and it almost doesn't even matter what I say. If I just even get in the neighborhood, you connect to it. And people are drawn in. I have people say, did you hear something about what was going on in my life this week? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? But they feel personally drawn in. That's the way the word of God works. When you grapple and study and embrace and, 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 and focus and learn and discover and allow God's word, which is living, to, to, to be absorbed and, 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 and grasped and studied. And, can, and when you connect to the word of God, the scriptures, that's what happens. I mean, unbelievable illumination and understanding and growth. But to the casual listener, the parable seems like a commonplace illustration. But to those who diligently meditate and work for more, they'll see beyond the common metaphors to the story of Israel, which was being retold and was even reaching its climax right in front of them in the person of Jesus. It becomes personal and you highly connect to it. To them, what would be added is understanding how Israel's story is being made new in them. So the parable would draw them into Israel's story. And as the disciples of Jesus, they would be on center stage so that he, who was now the light of the world, would make them light bearers with him. Through the hard work and study, meditation, prayer, that cryptic mystery shrouded in the parable would give way to awe and appreciation. 
The disciples would become part of something much bigger than themselves. An incomprehensible harvest, a whole new creation. Are you connecting to it differently now? Just a little bit? You can see all this joy in Peter's life when you just read his sermons. As he preaches his first sermon on the day of Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2, starting about verse 41, you can, you can just, get, you, you can just uh, get absorbed in it. On that day, the apostle Peter was drawn into the center of Israel's story, passions and, 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 their, and their dreams, and he highly connects um, to it, right? And he saw what Israel's leader, leaders could not see. He had a new lens to look through. That's what happens. This veil gets dropped and you see things and you have these aha moments because you've been set free. Parables were much more than information. Or lectures to the casual listeners. Parables were time-sensitive doorways given when Israel's history was reaching its climax. So before the disciples hear the rest of the parable, Jesus hands them two images of a lampstand and a measure. Okay? A lampstand and a measure. They, get, they must understand that the goal of the lamp is to illuminate the nation and the world, but they must never lose sight of the way this will happen. So let's just focus on that just for a few minutes. If the lamp is hidden under a basket, that is only temporary. By the measure of attention they give, they will be drawn into the light, becoming lovers of it. And from that, the intimacy of that relationship, they're going to pass it on to the rest of the world. A lamp and a measure, two simple images, but these are indispensable tools needed to enter into the kingdom of God. So let's look at the implications and... Um, uh, uh, the implications of the lamp and the measure. There's implications here from kind of getting your arms around just these few verses in these two images. Let me ask you this first one, this first, uh, uh, point out one thing first in the form of a question. With what measure do you measure? Now, at first pass, you're gonna go, what? With what measure do you measure? Let me explain it like this. This is a great question. I thought about saying, how do you measure? But it's not as rich. Think of it like this. Through these parables, though these parables are time sensitive to this, this kind of inauguration of the kingdom in Jesus' day, we, have, we, we can never become callous to the time-honored principles that God's truth is organic and precious. Now, you should understand and know what organic means. I don't have to explain it to you anymore, right? Because it used to be this little teeny section in the produce department, and now it's almost the whole thing, okay? God's word is 100%, let me say it like this. God's word is 100% relational. It is 100% relational. How is it 100% relational? It is 100%, let me say it like this, personal. It is 100% personal, personal. God's word is 100% relational. It is the intimate unveiling of the 
personal God. God does not just dispense information. He dispenses himself, his person, in every text of Scripture. And there is nothing more valuable than the saving truth of the gospel. So at every moment that the Scripture is unveiled and and brought forth and preached or shared or engaged with, we have to be attentive and thoughtful. We, we must in humility pray for open, receptive hearts and with active minds go beyond the surface of the text to the person of Jesus. On every page of the scripture, you should be able to see Jesus because he's on every page of the scripture because the scripture is his word. It is a personal, he, he is a personal God. And so in this regard, let's just talk about some dangers. Here's the first thing that I think that will help you with, with what measure do you measure? There's a great danger in our culture. It's called the, inform, or in, in our modern world, all right? And the first one is there's um, a danger of just so much information. I mean, you can get to information just like that, can't you, on the computer? Just, I mean, kids don't need books anymore. We have Google. You don't need the dictionary. You have Wikipedia, right? And everybody can contribute to it. Uh, the, the amount of information, actually, um, Sherry Van Fleet did a, little, uh, did, did a couple of lessons um, on marriage and uh, Proverbs 31 and um, uh, women, and she was talking about the, this information age. The amount of information that's available to us is just unbelievable. I mean, it's staggering. It's, uh, we're just overloaded, I think, with information, right? We have the ability to access everything, but tragically, we possess almost nothing most of the time. The parables don't dispense volumes of information. They just give us just a few simple images to grip your mind and your heart, but it is people's tenacious grip on those images which God uses to open up the kingdom to those who love him. So the church is in danger, in my view, of removing that element from worship and the necessity to think and to think deeply and, and, and pray fervently and meditate and have everything presented, we, we want everything presented in a pre-wrapped consumer package. And over the last number of years, let me put it like this. I've noticed that less and less people bring their Bibles to church. Right? And I'm not saying that you can't get your Bible on one of these. I mean, yeah, do it. But, but people don't even do that or they don't even have... Uh, applications, or they don't wrestle with God's word, and they don't bring it to church. They expect it to be plastered up here and me to spit it out. And that's what, uh, that's the way we want it to be packaged. We don't wrestle with it personally, right? The measure we give will be the measure we receive. We're in danger of not um, engaging with God's word and his teachings, like we should. Secondly, I find that our technology, our technological world throws so much at us. That's the second one. It's almost impossible to create a sacred time of solitude. I've said this before, and I would challenge you as well. I think you should at least one day a week just turn your cell phone off and leave it somewhere. You know, 
I uh, got ready to get out of my pickup truck and come in uh, this morning early. And I picked up my phone was in my pocket and I was like, I wrestled. Like, do I need my phone? And I left it in my truck. It, but I, it was, I had to be really intentional with it because I almost feel naked without it. I mean, can you get by with your phone one day? Can you remember a time when you didn't have a cell phone? I mean, how in the world did we get by? How, did you, how could you go to school without a phone, right? How could you go anywhere? How could you go to work without a phone? How could you drive anywhere on a trip without your phone? I mean, you might not know how to get there. For crying out loud, you might have to use a map, right? Rand McDally, or McNally, what is it called? McNally? Are they still in business? They can't possibly be unless they're an app now, Right? I cleaned out my garage um, because uh, we had a water leak and I had this cabinet and I have these beautiful road atlases in there. I'm like, man, these have been in there for a long time. And I just couldn't hardly throw them away because now they're like antiques. Atlases, road atlases, I mean maps. Are you kidding me? I have a little thing in my truck. It's a screen, and you just push your destination in there, and it'll even speak to you how to get there, right? Goodness. All these distractions choke out the word. But it, it can be done. Take a cell phone break once a week. Turn the TV off. Stop watching the news. Read a book. Read a paper one. Thirdly, many of us wrongly assume that now that the church has become the bearer of that light that the parable's talking about, that privilege cannot be lost, and it's not true. We have to remember the words of Jesus to the church in Ephesus. Do you remember Jesus uh, talks to the seven churches, right? He has some things to say to the seven churches in the first part of the book of Revelation, right? And in particular, the first church that he uh, uh, speaks to is the church of Ephesus, that though her doctrine was good, her first love had grown cold. Revelation 2, verses 1 and verse 5. Listen to this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these, uh, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand and the one who wa walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. That is, if you do not repent. You see, if you visit Ephesus today, if you visit Ephesus today, you're going to see that the Lord made good on his word. There's neither a candlestick nor lampstand nor church there. There's no church in Ephesus today of any biblical value. Ephesus is 99% a Muslim city. Muslim stuff everywhere. There is no Bible church in Ephesus today. You want to see some pictures? There's, a there, there, there's what's left of some kind of church. 
see that back up there? It's a, a Roman amphitheater that took over the city, built right on top of maybe where there was probably a church in that day, a church that Paul planted. That's probably of what's left of a church that was built hundreds of years later and it's not even there. No church in Ephesus. This is all that's left. Nothing. 99% Muslim. If it's a church that calls itself a church, it's so weak and wimpy, I would not call it a church. It's really sad. Really sad. How do you pass on the light of the lamp? Let's end with that question, or at least get close. We have to remember that though Jesus is the light of the world and that light will one day illuminate the whole earth, the mystery that was entrusted to those who loved Jesus. is a big deal. Jesus refused testimony from those who had no relationship with him. Remember the demons? He didn't permit them to speak. He veiled it to those who opposed him, the religious leaders, right? But he opened it deeply to those who loved him. He opened it deeply. The disciples continued this practice all throughout the book of Acts, and the church is birthed. The apostles gave themselves to diligently sharing and presenting the gospel. But beyond that, they were continually reaching for the deep encounters with people. Acts is filled with very intimate private encounters, especially when the gospel advanced in new directions. Philip, if you read any stories about Philip, he engaged a, a, a eunuch in the desert and he came to Jesus. Paul's wounds were washed in a jailer's home because he came to Jesus. Lydia persuaded Paul to stay at her house because he led her to Jesus. Titus Justice opened up his home next door to a synagogue because he came to Jesus. A slave named Onesimus provoked a New Testament letter all about forgiveness because he came to Jesus. It's called Philemon. You can read it. It's one page long in your Bible. It's all about forgiveness because he he gave his life to Jesus. He was changed and transformed. What this is saying is that while we keep the goal of evangelism in mind, we have to never forget the way it is supposed to be fleshed out. This is the red dot in the middle of the target. The light of the gospel is passed on through intimate, personal encounters that honor people by taking time with them, by welcoming them, by inviting them into your home, by eating with them. These encounters don't cheapen the gospel with trite phrases with, with, with formulas or unqualified statements. You know what an unqualified statement is? God is awesome. Who cares? Tell me why he's awesome. We just wing around on unqualified statements all the, all the time and cheapen up the gospel like that. It's meant to be honest and give, give as much life Uh, These relationships and these encounters should be honest and give life. Well, you give the message. These encounters should be washed in love. But we don't seem to have these encounters like we should all all that much. 
We have to never allow our technology to deceive us, believing that we can produce the harvest by, by bypassing this intimate stuff and by engaging in God's word and the parables and the teaching and engaging in intimate relations, relationships with people to draw them in, to present the gospel, to sow seeds in their hearts. Trey said something to me recently and it kind of surprised me, our youth pastor, a little bit. And we were talking about our youth group and how many kids just don't have very many non-believer friends. It's sort of shocking, right? How we kind of huddle together. And I'm thinking, you know, that maybe that's sort of indigenous to our area or our church, but, but we have to engage with people. We have to engage with people because God's word is personal and we are bearers of his image and this light as well. And it cannot be passed on. It cannot be uh, shared and challenged in just like this format. It's got to be in a personal manner. I hope you wrestle and, and, um, and engage with, this, with these parables maybe differently from here on out and practice things the way the disciples practice things in the book of Acts, giving themselves diligently to sharing and presenting the gospel. But beyond that, personally connecting with people so that you can bring this message in a personal way into people's lives. Let's pray together just for a moment. Lord God, thank you for um, times like this where we can engage in the scripture like this. And it's my prayer, Lord, that it would be motivating and inspiring, Lord, um, and challenging for us to wrestle through and study and work and embrace um, your word so that we might then carry this light into people's lives who, uh, uh, where it's really dark, where it's really dark in our, in our community, in our families, in our workplaces, um, in our city, in our state, all around God. Help us to be light bearers. In Jesus' name we pray.